I'll invite you to turn your Bibles to Deuteronomy chapter 7. We've been teaching a series on miracles for the last several weeks, and we've looked at the, uh, some of the miracles of creation. We've looked at uh, uh, some of the miracles that God did with uh, Moses in, uh, in Egypt to bring them out of the bondage of the Egyptians, the bondage of slavery. Uh, we've looked at uh, some of the things that happened in the wilderness, some of the miracles that happened in the wilderness. And now this morning, we want to talk to you about the promised land miracles. Now, um, we looked at, and I, I hope you have been with us, and, and uh, we don't have to take time to look back at it, but in, in uh, uh, several different scriptures, Numbers chapter 14 and Exodus chapter 13, the Bible identified why God did the miracles in the wilderness. He said specifically he did them for two reasons. Number one, he did them so that the people would believe his word. Secondly, he said that he did them so that he would prepare the people for war. Now, why is that? Because there's a war coming in the promised land. Now, the first Corinthians chapter 10 tells us that the people, speaking of Israel, coming out of Egypt, as they went through the Red Sea, that they were baptized into Moses, unto Moses in the Red Sea. It goes on in chapter 10 of 1 Corinthians to tell us that all the things that happened to Israel, both in the, the wilderness coming out of Egypt and then also in the promised land, as well as everything else in the Old Testament, is a type or an example for us. In other words, there's something for us to learn from because of the position that we have with God today. Well, if salvation was illustrated by them coming through the Red Sea with Moses, what's the promised land about? See, so many times people look at the promised land and say, well, that must be salvation. Well, the Bible says specifically that coming out of Egypt was a type of salvation. And just as they were baptized unto Moses, the scripture says they were baptized unto Moses. The Bible says that when you make Jesus the Lord of your life and ask him into your heart, you're baptized unto Christ. So if that's the case, if the Red Sea was a type of salvation coming out of sin and death into the, the promise of God, what's the promised land about? Well, historically, the church has said the promised land is heaven. Because when we get to heaven... That's when all the promises and the blessings of God will be ours and so forth. But let me ask you a question. Are there any giants in heaven? Any battles to fight when you get to heaven? Anybody going to be against you up there? Well, then how can the promised land be a type of heaven? It's not. The promised land is the type of the blessings that belong to the believer once he's saved. Are you with me? So the Bible in giving us examples of what Israel did to take their promised land shows us how we can take possession of all the things that the Bible says Jesus purchased for us on the cross. There's a, uh, the, and, and the perfect illustration, Israel is the perfect example of a difference, the difference between what belongs to you and what you possess. The promised land belonged to them as soon as they came out of the, the, uh, the land of Egypt crossed over the Red Sea. The promised land was theirs because God said, I've given it to you. But they spent 40 years wandering in the wilderness because they failed to take possession through unbelief. Joshua now is going to be the one that leads them in. He leads them across the Jordan River. He defeats the, the cities of Jericho and the other cities in, in Canaan in the promised land. He fights the battles, which is a type of the good fight of faith, the only fight that the Bible says the believer has. Thank God that good fight of faith will be over when we get to heaven. You won't have to fight the good fight of faith in heaven, will you? There'll be no opposition. There'll be no resistance. So the good fight of faith that the Bible says the believer is supposed to fight is the one here. Well, what are we supposed to fight the good fight of faith for? 
to take possession of the promises that Jesus purchased for us through his sacrifice and through his own blood. Amen? Now, in Deuteronomy chapter 7, the Bible tells us, the book of Deuteronomy is basically Moses' farewell address to the children of Israel. He's been their leader. He's with them all the 40 years in the wilderness, and now Joshua is about to take over. And so uh, he's telling the people what to do and giving them an admonition just before he goes off the scene. Now, I'm going to read from uh, the uh, Septuagint. This is Brenton's Septuagint. The Septuagint is the Greek translation of the, of the Hebrew. It's the Bible of Jesus' day. There are more New Testament references to Old Testament verses in the Septuagint than there is any other thing, which shows us the, the familiarity that the writers of the New Testament, including Jesus, had with the Septuagint, the Greek translation of the Hebrew. So I'm going to start reading beginning in verse 11 of Deuteronomy chapter 7. Uh, I'm, uh, they usually put the, the uh, King James up above my head on the screen. So if you want to look there and, and see the difference or read along with me, you feel free to do so. I like the way the Septuagint brings some of these things out. Beginning in verse 11 of Deuteronomy 7. Thou shalt keep, therefore, the commands and the ordinances and these judgments which I command thee this day to do. And it shall come to pass when you shall have heard these ordinances and shall have kept and done them, that the Lord thy God shall keep for thee the covenant and the mercy which he swear to your fathers. Now keep that in mind. God saying, I'm going to do this because of the covenant I made with Abraham. The Bible says the blessings of Abraham are ours. The Bible says in Hebrews 8, 6, that we have a better covenant established on better promises. So this is an example of what belongs to us, but we've got even better than he's going to tell them about. Amen. Verse 13, and he will love thee and bless thee and multiply thee. And he will bless the offspring of thy body and the fruit of thy land thy corn and thy wine and thine oil, the herds of thine oxen and the flocks of thy sheep, on the land which the Lord swear to thy fathers to give to thee. Thou shalt be blessed beyond all nations. There shall not be among you an impotent or a barren one or among any cattle. And the Lord thy God shall remove from thee all sickness and none of the evil diseases of Egypt which thou hast seen and all that thou hast known will he lay, literally permit, upon thee, but he will permit them upon all them that hate thee. And thou shalt eat all the spoils of the nation which the Lord thy God gives thee. Thine eyes shall not spare them, and thou shalt not serve their gods. For this is an offense unto thee. But if thou should say in thine heart, this nation is greater than I, how shall I be able to destroy them utterly? God knows you're going to have situations where you're afraid. Thou shalt not fear them, verse 18. Thou shalt surely remember all that the Lord thy God did to Pharaoh and all the Egyptians. The great temptations which thine eyes have seen, those signs and great wonders, the strong hand and the high arm, how the Lord thy God brought thee forth. So the Lord your God will do to all the nations whom thou fearest in their presence. In other words, being afraid did no excuse for not going forward and standing on the word. Being afraid doesn't mean the word won't work if you keep moving forward. Verse 20, and the Lord thy God shall send against them the hornets until they, are, until they that are left and they that are hidden from thee shall be utterly destroyed. Thou shalt not be wounded before them because the Lord thy God in the midst of thee is a great and powerful God. And the Lord thy God shall consume these nations before thee little by little. Thou shalt not be able to consume them speedily lest the land become desert and the wild beasts of the field be multiplied against thee. Literally God saying, 
I'll let you take it piece by piece so that the people that are there can keep the land going for you until you take it over. And the Lord thy God shall deliver them into thine hands. And thou shalt destroy them with a great destruction until you have utterly destroyed them. Now look with me over to chapter 8. He's continuing to talk. Let's begin in verse um, 6. And thou shalt keep the commands of the Lord thy God to walk in his ways and to fear him. Notice it's all based on the word. It's all based on keeping the word. For the Lord thy God will bring thee into a good and extensive land where there are torrents of waters and fountains of deep places issuing through the plains and through the mountains. A land of wheat and barley where there, wherein are vines, figs, and pomegranates. A land of olive oil and honey. A land on which thou shalt eat thy bread with I'm sorry, a land on which thou shalt not eat thy bread with poverty, and thou shalt not want anything upon it. A land whose stones are iron, and out of its mountains thou shalt dig brass. And thou shalt eat and be filled, and shalt bless the Lord thy God on the good land which thee has given thee. Take heed to yourself, that thou forget not the Lord thy God, so as not to keep his commands, and his judgments, and ordinances which I command thee this day. Lest, when thou hast eaten and art full... And hast built goodly houses and dwell in them. And thine oxen and thy sheep are multiplied to thee. And thy silver and thy gold are multiplied to thee. And all thy possessions are multiplied to thee. God seems to be into multiplying. That thou should be exalted in heart. And forget the Lord thy God who brought thee out of the land of Egypt. Out of the house of bondage. Who brought thee through that great and terrible wilderness. Where is the biting serpent and the scorpion and drought. Where there was no water. Who brought thee a fountain of water out of the flinty rock. Who fed thee with manna in the wilderness which thou knowest not. And thy fathers know not. Remember the word manna means I don't know what that is. God saying you still don't know what that is. Neither did your fathers. That he might afflict thee. Verse 16. That he might afflict thee and thoroughly try or prove thee. And do thee good in thy latter days. Notice the affliction that he's talking about is not something that's evil. It's something that brings good. Well, what is he trying to prove them to know? Verse, eight, verse 17. Lest thou should say in my heart, my strength and the power of my hand have brought for me this great wealth. In other words, he's saying the reason I gave you manna every day and the reason I gave you daily provision is so that you'd know it wasn't you, it was me. And that will serve you well in every aspect of life. Verse 18. But thou shalt remember the Lord thy God that he gives thee strength to get wealth even he, even that he may establish his covenant, which the Lord swear to thy fathers at the, as at this day. Now notice it starts with talking about, I'm doing this because of the covenant, and he ends up by saying, I'm doing this because of the covenant. Now notice what we saw. We saw that it was a land that was a good land flowing with milk and honey, olive oil and honey, wheat and barley, corn, all kinds of good things, God says. Uh, that he wants them to build goodly houses. He wants them to have plenty. He wants them to eat with eat their bread without scarceness, King James says. No poverty, no lack, an abundance. Now, the Bible says that we have a better covenant established upon better promises, as we referred to a minute ago. Why would God want his people today to have less than they had in the Old Testament example of the New Testament union with God? He talked in the Old Testament about their covenant being not permitting any of the diseases upon Egypt or any of the other diseases that they know about upon them. 
but they would come upon those that hate them. Why? Because the word makes the difference. The covenant makes the difference. It's keeping of the word that makes the difference. So if we operate according to the example and keep the commandments of the Lord and obey his commandments, we can walk free from these things, poverty and lack and sickness and so forth. We can walk free from these things today by fighting our faith battles and taking possession of our promised land. And that's what the whole story of Israel is about in the wilderness. Now turn with me to the book of Joshua. I want to, we want to talk this morning about the promised land blessings. There are four uh, promised land miracles, excuse me. There are four of them that we want to look at. First, we want to start in chapter 3 of Joshua. Up until this time, they've come to the edge of the promised land. God has told Joshua to be strong and of good courage. He's told him the key is the word, Joshua 1.8. This book of the law, literally the word of God, that's all they had. Shall not depart out of your mouth, but thou shalt meditate therein day and night. For then thou shalt make thy way prosperous, that thou mayest... Uh, let me back up. I missed part of it. Let me say it in, in its entirety. This book of the law shall not depart out of thy mouth, but thou shalt meditate therein day and night, that thou mayest observe to do according to all that's written therein. For then thou shalt make thy way prosperous, and then thou shalt have good success. In Joshua's day, the key to prosperity and success was being a doer of the word by meditating in it. Well, does God change? No. Does his word change? No. So what's the key to prosperity and success today? Meditating in the word and being a doer thereof. Now, what is it that we're supposed to prosper and have good success in? Well, God's speaking to Joshua about being prosperous and having good success in taking the promised land, leading the children of Israel into the promised land blessings. So what good success and what prosperity should we expect to have today? Taking the promised land blessings. Now, by that term, the promised land blessings, I mean that for them, it was the land of Canaan. For us, it's everything Jesus purchased for us through his death, burial, and resurrection. It's everything that Jesus redeemed us from the law of sin and death and the curses thereof. It's everything that belongs to us, specifically healing, specifically prosperity, specifically victory, specifically peace, specifically anything that's not of the devil. He redeemed, Jesus redeemed us from everything that is of the devil, everything that is of sin and death, the law of sin and death. So it's the way we take possession of everything that belongs to us. One of the saddest parts of heaven is going to be people that get to heaven and realize something belonged to them that they didn't take hold of down here. I believe that's one of the reasons why the Bible says that God's going to have to wipe away every tear in heaven. Well, what are people going to be crying about? The stuff they could have had. The life they could have lived. The blessings they could have walked in. And Jesus told us about this. Jesus said, the works that I do shall you do also. And even greater works than these shall you do because I go unto my Father. Why? Because he's going to the Father. Because he's opening the door to a better covenant established upon better promises. Now, people get all upset nowadays when you talk about healing, when you talk about prosperity, because they've got this idea that God's in control of everything and he's picking and choosing. He decides who gets healed. He decides who, who hits life's lottery by having enough. And he decides who struggles in life. And he decides who uh, lives their life and dies with sickness and, and so on and so forth. But that's not what the Bible says. The Bible says the same thing belongs to each and every one of us. The Bible says specifically that healing and blessings were purchased for us by the work of Jesus on the cross. 
Well, Pastor Mike, if that belongs to everybody, why didn't everybody have it? For the same reason that Israel wandered in the wilderness for 40 years. The promised land belonged to them. Think about it. Everybody that died from the age of 20 and up in those 40 years in the wilderness, every person that died had the same promise, of the, uh, had the same promise and possession of the promised land that the children of Israel took 40 years later. Not one thing changed except the willingness of the people to take it, except the willingness of the people to believe God. Moses is saying, God knows you're going to be afraid when you stand against your enemies. Just don't let your fear stop you which is what they did in Numbers chapter 13, which caused them to spend 40 years in the wilderness. Now, in uh, Joshua's day, Joshua's instructed of the Lord to be strong and of good courage. You've got to fight to fight. As a Christian, you've got to fight to fight. That's the fight of faith. It's not a fight against people. It's a fight against the enemy and the resistance thereof. And so he told him, be strong and of good courage. Here's how to win the battle. Make the word a part of your spirit. Meditate in the word. Be a doer of the word. That's how you can take possession of what belongs to you. God told him over and over again. Here's what I want you to do when you go in to possess it. You're the one that does the possessing. God's the one that makes the way possible. But you have to go in to possess it. If you're going to have healing. It's going to be because you take possession of it. Not because God does something out of heaven. You're going to have to be the one to take possession. If you're going to walk in the blessing of prosperity. You're going to have to take possession of it. And it's a possession that you take hold of by faith. It's not because prosperity doesn't belong to the talented. It belongs to those that have faith. Healing doesn't belong to the educated. It belongs to those who will receive it by faith. God made it simple enough for everybody else to get it. If he made it only for the educated and only for the talented, that'd leave you and me out. So you had to do it in a way that everybody could take hold. Amen? So they come to the Jordan River. They send two spies over into Jericho, the city that's got great walls. Now, archaeological excavations and so forth tell us that Jericho was a city that had a, 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 an 11-foot stone wall that was 14 feet at the base. Now, that, was, that had earth built up behind it and everything so that on top of that, there was a 35-foot wall that was at a 35-degree angle. Well, what is that? That's 46 feet. And then on top of that, there's another wall, another stone wall that goes up higher. Now, we don't know how high the stone wall was. Some people have estimated it to be as tall as a 100-foot wall. That's a 10-story building. At any rate, it's certainly an intimidating proposition for Israel to be able to get in and take possession of this city. It's got the most fortified wall, the most fortified city of anything that we have record of in Scripture. Two spies go in. They find this woman that lives in the in the wall of the city which tells you how big the wall must have been she's living in a little house in the wall of the city she's a harlot a prostitute and she gets there and tells the two spies that go into to to the promised land two spies that went into jericho that the fear of your people the fear of israel has been upon us ever since we heard that god parted the red sea now folks that was 40 years ago so all the time in the wilderness that Israel has been complaining and murmuring against God, murmuring against Moses, saying, oh, if only we had been able to stay in Egypt and die as slaves there. Their enemies, the ones that they shied away from 40 years earlier, have been afraid of them. Wondering every month, probably sending out scouts, do we see them? Are they coming our way? Because any God that can part the Red Sea for them is a problem for us. 
Yeah, but what about your walls? What about the Red Sea? That wouldn't have been nice if Israel had been thinking like that. When they looked at the walls of Jericho and said, wow, those are big, but they're not bigger than the Red Sea. They could have avoided, avoided 40 years of wandering in the wilderness. One of the saddest things in looking at people and, and, and being acquainted with people and seeing how they operate in their lives is seeing the years that they waste before they finally come to the realization that, you know, God is the right way and the word is true. What a shame to see people waste their lives. Israel, a whole generation, wasted their lives because they refused to believe God. So the two spies come back, tell Joshua what everybody has said. Joshua knows that, that okay, now's the time. And then God begins to speak to him about how to take the city, about how to go into the promised land. The first problem they've got is the Jordan River. The Bible tells us that it's the time of harvest. It's in the spring of the year when the Jordan River overflows. Something you need to know about the Jordan River is it starts in the northern part of Israel in Mount Hermon, which is, um, uh, let me make sure I've got these numbers right. Mount Hermon is 9,000 feet above sea level. So the Jordan River starts at the top of Mount Hermon, 9,000 feet above sea level, and it travels all the way down to the Dead Sea, which is 1,400 feet below sea level, the lowest place on the earth. So you've got a 10,400-foot drop that this water is moving. By the time it gets to where they cross the river there by the the city of Jericho, it's right close to the Dead Sea. It's one of the times, at least at this time of year, where you've got pretty much a Category 4 rapids. I mean, this water is swift moving. And as a result, it's one of the defenses that Jericho puts its trust in. They've built close close to the river, just close enough to where the flood doesn't affect them and damage their walls. But they're close enough to where it's a secondary defense. So they've got the wall and they've got the river, and they're trusting in both of them. So God speaks to Jericho, or God speaks to to Joshua about taking Jericho. Let's start reading in verse 14. Of chapter 3. Well, no, let me back up a little bit. Let me back up to about verse 9. And Joshua said unto the children of Israel, Come hither and hear the words of the Lord your God. And Joshua said, Hereby shall you know that the living God is among you, that he will without fail drive out from before you the Canaanites and the Hittites and the Hivites and the Perizzites and the Gergesites and the Amorites and the Jebusites. Behold, the ark of the covenant of the Lord of all the earth passes over before you into Jordan. Now therefore take you twelve men out of the tribes of Israel, out of every man a tribe, every tribe a man, excuse me. And it shall come to pass, as soon as the soles of the feet of the priests that bear the ark of the Lord, the Lord of all the earth, shall rest in the waters of the Jordan, that the waters of Jordan shall be cut off from the waters that come down from above. That means further north in the river. And they shall stand upon a heap. Now, folks, if you back up a little bit, you'll find that the Lord says in verse 7 and verse 8, The Lord said unto Joshua, This day will I begin to magnify thee in the sight of all of Israel, that they may know that as I was with Moses, so I will be with thee. What does that mean? 
We can look at that in a general sense and say, well, God said he'll be with you just like he'll be with Moses. But if you're Joshua and you've been spending 40 years with Moses out in the wilderness and you've seen the plagues in Egypt, you've seen the death of the firstborn, you saw the Red Sea part, you saw how God dealt with Moses at the Red Sea parting, where Moses said, stand still and see the salvation of the Lord, then turns to the Lord and the Lord says, what are you crying to me for? Why aren't you doing something about this? It seems to have had an effect upon Joshua. Now, the children of Israel did not learn the two lessons that, it, that Israel was supposed to learn. First, to believe God's word. And secondly, to be prepared for war. Joshua did. Because you'll find that Joshua does most of these things. The miracles that are taking place are more at Joshua's word than they are at God telling Joshua what to do. So when he says, I, as I was with Moses, I'll be with you. Joshua knows whether we recognize it or not. Joshua realizes that these are the situations where God got on to Moses for not stepping up and using the authority that he had because God had put him in place. In other words, sure, I'm the power behind the work being done, but quit looking to me to do it. You do it yourself and I'll back you up. So here's what God said. God said to to, um, uh, Joshua in verse 8, And thou shalt command the priests that bear the ark of the covenant, saying, When you are come to the brink of the water, you shall stand still in Jordan. After that, Joshua starts talking to the people. We don't see that God said anything about standing the waters up in a heap. Now, it's possible that it's there and that that's what happened in the Bible doesn't tell us. But why would the Holy Ghost leave that out? This is Joshua's account. Why wouldn't Joshua tell us everything that happened? Now, I'm thinking the same thing you're thinking, and that is that God really meant, as I was with Moses, I will will be with you. So you take your position of authority and use what I've given you. And he says, once the priests come into the edge of the Jordan River, stand still. Now, the, the, the Jordan River overflowed its banks because of the time of harvest. So he's not talking about stepping into the river. He's talking about stepping into where the water, the water's edge, far away from the river bank. The water's not moving fast there. So he says, very simply, let them stand with their feet in the water. That could have been 100 feet away from the the riverbank. It could have been 500 feet away from the riverbank. I don't know how far it was. There's no way for us to tell. But wherever it was, just put your feet in the water. So you got these priests standing there with the Ark of the Covenant on their shoulders, being carried by the sticks that go through the rings in the side. And all they're having to do, all they're supposed to do is put their feet in water. Make sure that their feet are wet. From that point, Joshua says, and here's what will happen. God will cause the waters to be cut off from the north, even upon the, they'll stand up in a heap. The Bible tells us that it had happened 20 miles north in the city of Adam. This was not God making a path like the Red Sea. This was the waters being cut off from 20 feet, 20 miles north in the city of Adam. Now, some people will say, well, but there's something you're overlooking there, Pastor Mike. See, in the city of Adam, there have been seven times in the last thousand years that there have been mudslides and the Jordan River has been cut off. And that's true. It's historical fact. But I don't have a problem if God cut the waters off with a mudslide. Isn't it a coincidence that it happened just as the priests put their feet in the water? See, when God does a miracle, he uses some means that we can either identify, and sometimes it's a natural means, but it's still a supernatural and spectacular, a miraculous origin 
that caused it to happen to begin with. Think about what the mudslide would have to be. It would have to be such a a, a slide, such a, a rock and clay slide that would cut off any water coming south. In other words, we're talking about a mudslide that would create a complete dam for them to go over on dry ground, which is what they did. I say dry dry ground. It was a rock bottom, according to what God told them to do with the rocks on the bottom. But nevertheless, here's Joshua. Let's go back to what Joshua said. Joshua said, as it shall come to pass, verse 13 again, as soon as the soles of the feet of the priests that bear the ark of the Lord, the Lord of all the earth, shall rest in the waters of Jordan, that the waters of Jordan shall be cut off from the waters that come down from above, and they shall stand upon a heap. And it came to pass when the people removed from their tents to pass over Jordan that the priests bearing the ark of the covenant before the people and as they that bear the ark were come unto Jordan that means the edge of the water that overflowed the banks that the feet of the priests that bear the ark were dipped in the brim of the water for Jordan overflows all his banks at the time of harvest that the waters which came down from above stood and rose up upon a heap very far from the city Adam very far from them in the city of Adam is literally what it means that is besides Zeratan, and those that came down toward the sea of the plain, even the salt sea, the dead sea, failed, and they were cut off, and the people passed over right against Jericho. And the priests that bear the ark of the covenant of the Lord stood firm on dry ground in the midst of Jordan, and all the Israelites passed over on dry ground until all the people were passed clean over under Jordan. Now, put yourself in the position of Jericho. You've been afraid of these people for 40 years because you heard of, nobody saw it, but you heard of the Lord parting the Red Sea. Now these same people come 40 years later and the waters of the Jordan River are cut off. And here's the significance of the miracle. You remember in, uh, in the Exodus miracles how God executed judgment. There were nine, uh, nine plagues and the death of the firstborn. Each of those plagues was an execution of judgment upon one of the gods of Egypt. You remember that? Well, the Canaanites, people in, in uh, Jericho, worshipped the god of the, of the Jordan River. They considered Baal to be the god of the Jordan River. He was not only their fertility god, but he was the god of their provision. Now here's the god of the Israelites doing the same thing to their god as they heard about happening with the Red Sea and the exodus from Egypt and so forth. So this is a judgment against the gods of the Canaanites. Now... Then the next thing that happens is they camp for a couple of weeks on the Jericho side of the Jordan River. God instructs uh, Joshua to circumcise the people. They set up a memorial there. They do different things to, uh, to prepare themselves before they get ready to go out against the, the city of Jericho. Again, all these are, are intimidation tactics on God's part against the city. Now that brings us to the next miracle which is the walls of Jericho and you know the story there it's in Joshua chapter 6 I'm going to start in verse 1 now Jericho was straightly shut up because of the children of Israel none went out and none came in they're expecting to be besieged now a siege was a a common way to to attack or or wage war against a fortified city in those days and um, uh, one of the ways that, uh, that you did that is you shut the people up in the city. You didn't let anybody go in or out. You tried to cut them off from their food supply and so forth. The problem is this is harvest time. This is not the time that you would be attacking a city because they've got the biggest stores of food and water and everything else that you could possibly have at any other time of the year. 
As a matter of fact, the archaeological digs and excavations have found that the city of Jericho was burned, just like the Bible says, and grain stores were burned, and foodstuffs and all that kind of thing are, are in abundance in the, um, uh, in the finds that they've made, the diggings that they've made, because it happened just the way the Bible says. This is not a siege, although that's what they're prepared for. Now, if a city is going to be besieged by an army, there's a couple of ways to, to do this. Either, number one, you can starve them out. And if you're the right time of year and you're in the right situation, maybe that's the easiest way to go. Or, secondly, one of the ways that the Roman army used very often was that they would build up these earthen ramps. And so you get a lot of people, you get a lot of soldiers killed, especially when you're going against the wall of a city or something like that. But they'd build these ramps so that they could go in and over the top of the walls. Because in most cases, trying to defeat the walls itself was a futile effort. Because you didn't have the machinery and things you could have today that might do anything about it and, and, uh, and so forth. Well, Jericho is probably expecting one of the two. When they don't see any kind of earthen ramp starting up, they just see him camped out there. They're probably expecting to be sieged. They're probably expecting to be starved out. Well, they can last forever. They can probably outlast the Israelites because of the harvest time, the time of the year that it is. So they were shut up. Nobody came in. Nobody went out. Verse 2, and the Lord said unto Joshua, I love this first scripture. Please make a notice of this. Here's a city that's shut up. They can't get in. The people aren't coming out. There's no way in. And God says, see, I have given unto your hand Jericho. And the king thereof and the mighty men of valor. Now, folks, if I'm Joshua and I look, I'm going to think, all I see is a city that's closed up tight. God says, see, I've given it into your hand. We've got to learn to think about and see things the way God does. See, so many times think people think that operating by faith is, is walking blindly. It's not. It's walking by a better sight than with your natural eye. It's looking into things not seen And not just things that are seen. Because the things that are not seen, Paul tells us, are eternal. The things that you can see are temporary. And folks, we know for a fact the walls around Jericho were temporary. No matter how big they were. No matter how thick they were built. No matter how strong or how many enemies they'd they'd withstood and, and, and kept out. They were temporary. Verse 3, and you shall compass the city, all you men of war, and go round about the city once. Thus shalt thou do six days. And seven priests shall bear before the ark seven trumpets of ram's horns. And the seventh day you shall compass the city seven times. And the priests shall blow with the trumpets. And it shall come to pass that when they make a long blast with the ram's horn, and when you hear the sound of the trumpet, all the people shall shout with a great shout, and the wall of the city shall fall down flat. Literally the word flat means in its place. And the people shall ascend up every man straight before him. And Joshua the son of Nun called the priests and said unto them, Take up the ark of the covenant and let seven priests bear seven trumpets of ram's horns before the ark of the Lord. And he said unto the people, Pass on and compass the city and let him that is armed pass on before the ark of the Lord. And it came to pass when Joshua had spoken unto the people that the seven priests bearing the seven trumpets of ram's horns passed on before the Lord and blew with the trumpets and the ark of the covenant of the Lord followed them. And the armed men went before the priests that blew with the, tr- with the trumpets. And with the rear guard came after the ark, like priests going on and blowing with the trumpets. Verse 10. And Joshua had commanded the people. God didn't say one word about this. Here's Joshua operating on his own initiative. Why? Because he knows where these people come from. 
So Joshua adds something to this. He recognizes that he's got a say in this. He's got some responsibility in what's done and how it's done. He's not violating anything that God commanded him to do, but he does add to it. Joshua had commanded the people saying, you shall not shout nor make any noise with your voice. That would include speaking or talking. Neither shall any word proceed out of your mouth until the day I bid you shout, then shall you shout. Joshua knows when that day is going to be. Seven days from today. You can't talk for a week. Now this is not just not talking while they're walking around the city. He says, no words shall come out of your mouth until I tell you. He's not coming back in the afternoon saying, okay, everybody can talk now. He realizes that the, the key to this, the key to being successful and taking the city of Jericho and defeating the, the, uh, the enemy, the walls of the city and so forth. He knows the key is not just what God said, but to keep the people on board with what God said. He remembers 40 years earlier or 38 years earlier. He remembers Numbers chapter 13 where they came to this edge of the promised land once before and the people started talking against God's promise. So what does he do? He shuts them up. Now you cannot tell me he gets everybody in faith. He just gets everybody quiet. And folks, you need to understand something. Faith operating in the smallest measures, the tiniest, tiniest part if it's the only thing that's said, will work. What doesn't work is when it's overcome and, and countermanded by words of doubt and fear and unbelief. But you can take the smallest amount of faith and, just, and express that, say that, and then stay quiet, and it'll work. Why? Because you have what you say. You don't have what you think. You don't have what you're afraid of. You don't have what you... What you do anything but say, yet you have what you say. I'm reminded of, of uh, uh, Jairus that came to Jesus. You remember the story in Mark chapter 5? Jairus comes and says, my little daughter is at the point of death. Come lay hands on her that she'll live and not die. Well, Jesus is on the way to Jairus' house and the woman with this issue of blood shows up. And man, she takes forever. She tells the story. 12 years, suffered of many physicians, spent all that I had, nothing better but rather grew worse. I heard about you, so I came, started saying, if I can just touch the hem of your garment, I'll be whole. While she's yet speaking, somebody comes back from Jairus' house saying, it's too late, your daughter's dead. Jesus immediately turns and says to the father, be not afraid, only believe. What does that mean? Shut up. Don't say a word. Why? Because the faith you exercised before is still working. Don't let the circumstance change what you're saying. So Joshua tells the people, you can't talk till I tell you. Now, I don't know if he told them up front it'll be for a week. Or if he just says, you can't talk till I say so and and leaves it at that. They may be sitting around the campfire at night wondering if I'll ever be able to talk again. We don't know. But Joshua knows something. He knows that if he lets the people start talking about how big the wall is then even though God says the city is ours, we won't take possession of it. Can you see the examples for us to follow? Verse 11. So the ark of the Lord compassed the city going about it once, and then they came to the camp and lodged in the camp. 
And Joshua rose early in the morning, and the priest took up the ark of the Lord. <coughs> Excuse me. And seven priests bearing seven trumpets of ram's horn before the ark of the Lord went on continually and blew with the trumpets, and the armed men went before them. But the rear guard, the rear ward, came after the ark of the Lord, the priests going on blowing with trumpets. Apparently, they blew the trumpets when they started to walk around the city to let the city know we're back. But after that, it was silence until the end. <clears throat> the second day they compassed the city once and returned to the camp so they did six days and it came to pass on the seventh day that they rose early about the dawning of the day and compassed the city after the same manner seven times only on that day they compassed the city seven times <clears throat> and it came to pass at the seventh time when the priest blew with the trumpets Joshua said unto the people shout for the Lord has given you the city folks by now everybody's ready to say something Joshua gives instruction about the city being cursed. Don't take anything from the city. The only thing we're going to save are the precious metals for the temple of the Lord. Verse 20. So the people shouted when the priest blew with the trumpets. And it came to pass when the people heard the sound of the trumpet. And the people shouted with a great shout that the wall fell down flat. So that the people went up into the city. Every man straight before him and took the city. Uh, the archaeological expeditions have shown us that the wall toppled from the top down and made a ramp, made a, its own ramp for the, city, for the people going up into the city. And, and which is exactly what it says. So the people went up into the city. They climbed the ramp that God made for them by the destruction of the wall. And they utterly destroyed all that was in the city, both man and woman, young and old, and ox and sheep and ass with the edge of the sword. Only one they saved was Rahab and her house. Because that was the agreement that they had, the two spies had made with them. So the first two things, the first two examples we see going into the promised land. First two things is God executes judgment on the God that they serve, Baal, by, by causing Israel to cross over the Red Sea. Uh, what's the name of it? Jordan River, excuse me. Crossing over the Jordan River on dry ground. Then the very next thing is they take the biggest, most heavily fortified, most defensed city he starts off with the top he destroys the wall through faith now you know as well as i do that walking around the walls six times for six days and seven times on the seventh day and blowing trumpets and stuff like that there's nothing that's going to cause a wall to fall and somebody might say well maybe it was an earthquake well if so god timed it to coincide with the shout of the people see i wouldn't have a problem with it even being an earthquake the problem is the earthquake didn't destroy the part of Rahab's house. It saved that part of the city. So it worked just exactly the way God said it worked. I don't care if the earth shook. I don't care if the heavens shook. I don't care if a wind knocked it over. I don't care if an angel pushed it over. I don't care how it happened. The fact is it's miraculous because God said it's going to happen beforehand. Man thinks he's so smart. Well, you predict an earthquake then. Doesn't happen, Right? Now, turn with me over to the next one. There's four of these. The next miracle of the promised land is, well, wait a minute. Before we go there, I need to show you something in chapter 7. <clears throat> the next one, the next two over in Joshua chapter 10. We can cover those pretty quickly. But I want you to see something in Joshua chapter 7. <clears throat> God instructs Israel through Joshua not to touch or take any of the spoils of the city. This is the one city that represents the tithe to God. The only thing to say to the precious metals for the, for the temple. So God says, don't take anything. It's a city full of stuff. It's one of the biggest cities, if not the biggest city in, in uh, all of Canaan. Would have been great to collect stuff from. 
But he says, no, this one belongs to the Lord. Burn it like they burned the sacrifice, offered the burnt offerings. Burn this because it's a type of the tithe. It's a type of what belongs to God as, uh, a res- as the result of him bringing the promised land into your, into your possession. But one guy takes some of the stuff and hides it and, and, uh, and so forth so that the next battle they go out uh, against the, the enemies of Israel, they lose and, uh, or begin to lose. They lose 36 men. And Joshua, verse 6, chapter 7, verse 6, here's Joshua's response. Now, I think this is instructive for us as far as the promised land operation is concerned. Joshua rent his clothes and fell to the earth upon his face before the ark of the Lord until the eventide. And the elders of Israel, he and the elders of Israel, and put dust upon their heads. And Joshua said, please notice Joshua's response to this. Joshua said, Alas, O Lord God, wherefore hast thou at all brought this people over Jordan to deliver us unto the hand of the Amorites to destroy us? Wouldn't to God we have been content and dwelt on the other side of Jordan? He sounds like the same unbelieving people that he's been dealing with for 40 years. Notice how Joshua, the man who God said, here's how to be prosperous and have good success. It's all about the word of God. It's all about meditating the word, being a doer of the word. Anytime, therefore, that there's failure, you should know that the problem is not with God. The problem is not acting on the word. But Joshua, at the first hint of, of defeat, Joshua falls on his face and said, Oh, God, why did we even cross the Jordan River? Why did we even cross the Jordan River? Now, here's exactly what a lot of people do. If crossing the Red Sea was a type of salvation, what is the crossing of the Red Sea a type of? Or what's crossing the Jordan River a type of? It's a type of the baptism of the Holy Ghost. Because, folks, that is the highway. The baptism of the Holy Ghost is the highway for the blessings of God. It's a highway for the blessings of the believer. It's a highway, the path to everything Jesus purchased for us on the cross. And people get on this side of the Jordan River, the promised land side of the Jordan River, and run into an obstacle, and they say, oh, I guess God's turned against me. Maybe it had been better if I hadn't even started going to that faith church. I never had this much trouble with the devil before I started trying to confess the word. Well, duh. You're no threat to the enemy. What's he going to bother you for? He's got you where he wants you. Dumb and happy. Here's what Joshua does. Oh, if only we'd stayed on the other side of the Jordan River. Why? What's over there? It wasn't the promised land. It wasn't what God wanted for them. But so many people are willing to give up with less. They're willing to stay in the wilderness. And I'm talking about where the baptism of the Holy Ghost is concerned. They're saved. They're going to make heaven. And they're willing to live in the wilderness. Joshua says, oh, if only we'd been content. And dwelt on the other side of Jordan. Verse 8. Oh Lord what shall I say? Lord don't you know how this makes me look? Now that's the thing to be concerned about right? Lord what shall I say when Israel turns their backs before their enemies? For the Canaanites and all the inhabitants of the lands shall hear of it. And shall environ us around. And cut off our name from the earth. And what wilt thou do unto thy great name? And the Lord said unto Joshua. I feel your pain. And the Lord said to Joshua, get up. Wherefore liest thou thus upon thy face? 
What are you complaining about? Now, folks, if you look at that from Joshua's standpoint, there's something he doesn't understand. The same thing that many people don't understand today. And that is what God's going to explain to him. Verse 11, Israel has sinned. And they have also transgressed my covenant, which I commanded them. For they have even taken of the accursed thing, the city of Jericho, the possessions of the city of Jericho, the spoils, and have also stolen and dissembled also, lied about it, and they have put it even among their own stuff. Therefore, this is why the children of Israel could not stand before their enemies, but turned their backs before their enemies because they were accursed. Neither will I be with you anymore except you destroy the accursed from among you. So many times people are wondering, why aren't things working for me? Why don't things work? And they want to blame God. You got a lot of the church doing that today. Well, I tried to believe in healing and it didn't work. I, I prayed and I asked God to heal me and it didn't work. So God just doesn't do that anymore. Now think about the logic behind that. My prayer didn't get answered, so God's the problem. That's exactly what God says to Joshua. Joshua, what's the key to success for you? Meditate in the word and be a doer of thereof. What's the success, the, the pathway to success for everybody? Meditate in the word and be a doer thereof. God says specifically, now you take this any way you want to. But the type that's being talked about is Jericho being the tithe. And so what happened with this one person is he took what was supposed to be separated and sanctified unto God as the tithe. And he took it for himself. And it brought destruction into his life. Into the life of all of Israel. And God very simply says, I'm out unless you fix the problem. Now, lest I heap condemnation on you or leave you here under condemnation, let me tell you that things don't work exactly the same way they did in his day. It was a do it or else. We're under the age of grace. But that doesn't mean the difference is under the old covenant, there was pretty much instant judgment that fell. You messed up, disobeyed the word, judgment fell immediately. If not instantly, certainly immediately. Under the new covenant, the age of grace, you get by a little longer. God gives you a chance to fix things and make things right. But the same result is true. And that is the blessings of obedience are necessary to take possession of all that Jesus purchased for us on the cross. Obedience is necessary. Be a doer of the word and not a hearer only deceiving your own self. So many Christians today are deceived. They're operating on one part of the word, the parts that they want to receive from God on, but then they're ignoring other parts of the word and thinking that it's all going to work out together. It doesn't. We're supposed to be doers of the word in every area of our lives. Yeah, well, Pastor Mike, I'm paying my tithes and I'm giving offerings and I'm expecting God to bless me. I'm just hoping God will overlook the fact that I'm a liar. Good luck with that. He will for a while. But honesty is important too, you know. Well, I'm obeying the word of God where, where finances are concerned, but I'm uh, not treating my, my wife well. Okay, good luck with that. It's all the word, folks. What part of the word is more important than the other? Sure got quiet in this Presbyterian church. It's a real question. 
What part of the word is more important than another? If it's the word of God, it's all the word of God. Isn't that true? God's word is not a buffet where you pick and choose the parts you like and leave the rest for somebody else. It's all the word. Joshua doesn't understand that, but he learns. So God tells him, get off your face. God had to rebuke Moses. Now he has to rebuke Joshua. Get off your face. Fix the problem. So Joshua goes to the Lord and says, okay, who's the problem? God tells him how to find out, and he finds out and does, does what needs to be done. Now turn with me over to chapter 10. We'll cover the last two real quickly. Chapter 10. Uh, Joshua winds up fighting five kings of the Amorites. In verse 5, it names the five kings. Joshua is deceived. I guess I've got to give you a little backstory. Joshua is deceived in the preceding chapter by one of the, the cities and the, the inhabitants of the cities. They make out like they're from a long way away and they want to make a, uh, a treaty with Israel so that they are in alliance with them. Joshua doesn't consult with the Lord. He believes the, the, uh, the people that are lying to him. And instead of consulting the Lord, he winds up making a treaty with them, making an alliance with them. And this is one of the towns that, there's, that he was supposed to destroy. And so it gets him in trouble because the, these five kings of the Amorites then attack the city that's now in an alliance with Joshua. Well, he's bound by his word to defend them when they're attacked. So he goes to the Lord and asks, well, what should I do about this? I shouldn't care about them, but I've messed up. Help me out of this problem. So God says, go ahead and fight against them. He said, I'll deliver you. So it says in verse 7, So Joshua ascended from Gilgal, he and all the people of war with him, and all the mighty men of valor. And the Lord said unto Joshua, Fear them not, for I have delivered them under your hand. Talking about the five kings and their armies. There shall not a man of them stand before thee. And Joshua therefore came unto them suddenly and went up from Gilgal all night. And the Lord discomfited them before Israel and slew them with a great slaughter of Gibeon. And chased them along the way that goeth up to Beth Horon, and smote them unto Azekah and unto Makeda. I guess I'm saying those right. In other words, there was a supernatural result that took place from the battle itself because God was on Israel's side. But then God does something miraculous in verse 11. And it came to pass as they fled from before Israel, talking about all the uh, enemy armies, and were in the going down to the Beth Horon, that the Lord cast down great stones from heaven upon them unto Azekah. Now, some translations read this as hailstones, and maybe it was hailstones. I don't know what it was, but something came down from heaven. Something came down from the sky. One of the reasons for this was because the Amorites were worshipers of the sky, and their gods were in the sky. So he cast down great stones from heaven upon them unto Azekah, and they died. And there were more which died with hailstones than they whom the children of Israel slew with the sword. So in other words, they know, the ones that are running... It's not the only ones that are, the part of the armies run and part of the armies stay and fight. So part of uh, Israel's army went to chase the ones that ran away. And that's when the hailstones come, in, come down against them. Now here's the, the here's, that's the third miracle of the promised land. Here's the fourth one. Verse 12, then spake Joshua to the Lord. Please notice that phrase. Then spake Joshua to the Lord. Not God told Joshua to do it. Then spake Joshua to the Lord. In the day when the Lord delivered up the Amorites before the children of Israel... And he said in the sight of Israel, he's talking to God 
or the, what the Bible identifies as talking to God. Here's what he said for all of Israel to hear. Son, stand thou still upon Gibeon, and thou moon in the valley of Ajalon. So it says Moses, uh, it says Joshua is speaking to God, but really what he's doing is he's speaking in the ears of God, talking to the sun and the moon. Notice how the Bible talks about that. In other words, it's saying Joshua spoke to the sun and the moon, and God counted that as speaking to him. Keep that in mind. Because remember, these are types and examples for us. He said, son, son, stand thou still upon Gibeon, and thou moon in the valley of Ajalon, which means they both must have been visible. It must have been the time of day where the sun is going down and the moon is coming up. Now, as I said, the Amorites were worshipped, their gods were in the sky. They worshipped the sun god and the moon god. Now you've got in this army, this battle, the five kings of the Amorites gathered together. All the Amorite people are represented by these five, en- five enemy armies, enemies to Israel. And now their sun and their moon, their gods, are being commanded by Joshua, whose God, the God of Israel, backs him up and stops them dead still. And the sun stood still and the moon stayed until the people had avenged themselves upon their enemies. Is this not written in the book of Jasher? So the sun stood still in the midst of heaven and hasted not to go down about a whole day. You might be interested to know that in most other cultures around the world, there is this same day as a part of their history or, or mythology or whatever. Nearly every culture on the face of the earth has a day where their God, their hero, their somebody stopped the sun and the moon. Well, it makes sense because if God's stopping the sun and the moon, it has to affect the whole earth. I mean, it's not just stopping the sun and the moon over the battlefield, but then the sun and the moon rises and falls and the moon comes up and the moon goes down and all that other kind of stuff everywhere else in the earth. Think about the laws of of the earth that had to be changed for the sun and the moon to stand still. So as a result, there are many other historical uh, or, well, they're not accepted as historical because a lot of people don't believe the stories of the Bible. But there are many other references, legends or, or whatever you want to call them, in, in most of the other cultures of the earth. Now, here's a verse I want you to see, verse 14. We'll end with this. And there was no day like that before. There was no day like that before it or after it. That the Lord hearkened unto the voice of a man, for the Lord fought for Israel. What I want you to see is what the Bible, what Joshua says, this was a day, inspired by the Holy Ghost, he said this was a day that was unlike any day before or since, when God hearkened to a man's voice. When God hearkened to a man's voice. These are types and examples for us. The Bible says we have a better covenant established upon better promises. What does that mean for us? You remember what Jesus said in John 14? Verses 13 and 14, he said, And whatsoever you shall ask, King James says ask, is the word call for or require. It literally means speak in my name. Whatsoever you shall call for or require, speak in my name. That will I do that the Father may be glorified in the Son. If you speak anything in my name, I will do it. Joshua came up into a place. A situation where he had need of something. His need was for daylight. So he told the sun and the moon to stand still. Is that the only way God could have made light come down? No. God could have let the sun and the moon do their thing and cause light to shine down from heaven like a spotlight. But he hearkened to the voice of a man. 
What is this for? It's for us to understand the covenant that we have in the name of Jesus. God hearkens to the voice of a man. God hearkens to your voice. Jesus said so. If you speak anything in my name, that will I do, that the Father may be glorified in the Son. What has God shown in this Old Testament example? He's the God of nature. He's bigger than any other God. He's bigger than any other enemy's defense. He'll rain down things from heaven if necessary. And he'll stop the operation of the earth, even the universe itself. Why? Also, that he can make good to the covenant, make good on the covenant that he made to Abraham. And if you're Abraham's seed, if you're Christ, then you're Abraham's seed and heirs according to the promise. Let's pray. Thank you, Father. Thank you that nothing is impossible with you. Thank you that nothing is impossible to him that believes. Lord, we recognize that these things are examples, illustrations for us. Illustrations of your power to save. Illustrations of your power to, to make good the promised land blessings. Oh, Father, let us not be like those that died in the wilderness. But let us be like Joshua. Who know their place with you. Who know the covenant responsibilities and rights that we have. Who know that you hearken to the voice of your children. Father we thank you that healing and blessing is ours. We thank you for the privilege as believers. To be filled with your spirit. Thank you Lord that greater is he that's in us than he that's in the world. Thank you Lord that this is the victory that overcomes the world even our faith. Thank you, Father, for the righteousness that is ours because of the precious blood of Jesus. Now, Lord, we come to you today to receive communion, which represents the body and the blood of the Lord, which was sacrificed for us to make us righteous, make us new creatures in Christ Jesus, but also to ensure that your blessings of healing, provision, peace, victory, well-being in every area of life are made manifest in us and for us. We thank you, Father, that our words count, just like Joshua's, because you're with us just as you were with him. In Jesus' precious name, amen.